Morning, Glory America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for joining me in the ReliefFactor.com studio. It is the first Hillsdale Dialogue of 2020, the first Hillsdale Dialogue of the new decade. And what a day to have it on. Dr. Larry Arn joins me from Hillsdale, Michigan, where he's the president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale, collected at Hillsdale.edu. Every one of our conversations dating back to 2013, collected at HughForHillsdale.com. You can sign up for Imprimus, the monthly speech digest which will arrive in your mailbox monthly. Once you do so, it's absolutely free. All of the online courses are there. Today, we're going to talk about great power competition and what it means for the world and national security. And Dr. Arn, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you. How are you? I am good, and I, I, I have to begin with the action yesterday of Donald Trump. What did you make of the decision to kill Soleimani at the Iraqi airport? <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's a, you know, uh, I keep saying, you know, the... The uh, Churchill believed that uh, that you had to do things sometimes against tyrants that were sudden and didn't cost you very much, and that showed you they were that that they were you are serious. And then, if you can, something that strikes a decisive blow. Well, this didn't do that, but they you know they beat up our embassies and harass our people and send militia into Iraq where we are and they and all that. And so the guy who's doing it, we killed him yesterday. He is also, if Bashar Assad is a war criminal, and I believe he is, Soleimani is a war criminal because he advised Bashar Assad on the genocide that has been ongoing in Syria for close to a decade. I don't know that there's any moral case against killing Soleimani. Well, he's, you know, in, in this war, let's just say... In a better world, you wouldn't go around assassinating people. And, uh, but in this world, you might, and you might do it because these people are bad people. And add this important fact, they're causing us harm. It's an aggressive attack on the United States of America, mostly indirectly because, indirect, because direct is hard, but, but still meaningfully. And so we've made an attack back upon them. You know, the um, I, I received a note earlier today from a friend of mine in the military who said, don't call it an assassination, it's a justified use of force. I think he's right. Michael Oren was on early this morning from Israel, and he said, quote, Qassam Soleimani is responsible for not tens of thousands of deaths, maybe hundreds of thousands of deaths in our region. He is responsible for the displacement of millions. He is responsible for repeated efforts to kill Israelis, kill Americans, kill Arabs, certainly. And no figure in the Middle East, I think, is more deserving of the fate in which, uh, in which he received. I agree with that. Do you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I will make the obvious point that the effect of assassination and the effect of a justified use of force are similar. Yes, they are. They're both, you're both dead. You're right. So let me, let me go to where this actually is the perfect intro to what I asked you to prepare to talk about today. And my New Year's resolution for the show is that it focus continually and enter, with entertainment value on great power competition because it's, you know, we're 2020. In 2030, the question will be, are we better off now than we were in 2020 as a great power as a nation? And it really depends on whether or not we use all the instruments of national power in this competition. But we've got to begin by understanding what that is. How do you begin that conversation? Well, I, um, so I, you know, I'm a one-trick pony in one way. I, I happen to know a lot about the career of Winston Churchill, and I think that we are in a position now similar to the position that Britain was in in about 1890. And uh, I think that we should 
do what Churchill urged Britain to do, not what they did. And uh, and that's, you know, so I have a model in front of me. Uh, and why do I think it's similar? Well, if you just look at a map of the world, uh, 70% of the world's population is on the Eurasian landmass. And another 17% is on Africa, which is close to that, right? And so 87% of the world's people live there. And we, in North and South America, we're off like a equivalent of an island, like Britain, off the coast of Europe, way off by ourselves. And that's a, a very happy place to be, except you have to remember that the components of world power are chiefly on the other side of the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean. So the strategic question is, and also, by the way, we are vastly outnumbered. These are all the elements of the British Empire. In the 19th century, British Britain won big wars with France and Spain in the 17th and 18th century, centuries, and right at the beginning of the 19th. And then long hundred years of peace from which they waked up and great powers were emerging that were bigger than Britain, and that promised or, or threatened to, uh, to unite control or uh, consolidate control over what was then the only fulcrum of the world outside the United States, which was Europe. The Germans were bigger than the British and the French, and they had, uh, had by a series of brilliant wars led by Bismarck, consolidated their power in the middle of Europe, and then for 20 years, they followed a very careful Pacific foreign policy to hold on to what they got and keep everybody assured that they weren't going to eat them. But then the old generation, Bismarck and Kaiser Wilhelm I, retired, and Wilhelm II and his advisors were like rich kids. They inherited the money, but they didn't understand the elements of its constraint and, and retention. And so what did they do? What they did was they alienated everybody. And finally and fatally, they alienated Britain by building an ocean-going navy. And that, they had never had one of those, right? And Britain's way, and this is us too, uh, when, when we think about the American strategic position, we should think of, of uh, defending the homeland and asserting a power, power, over the oceans and the skies and now space. And that's exactly the British problem. And things intensified led to the First World War in part by the fact that Germany then began to challenge on all of those areas, as China is doing today. And so that's what we should think about. And, and if you do think that way, you can just look at a map. It's actually reasonably simple. And if you, if you look at the sort of major port places around the Eurasian landmass, first of all, you'll be, if you know any history, you'll be looking at a story of great events in history that took place around that periphery. Right. And, and so what does that mean? That means that uh, London is important to us, and Morocco is important to us, and Portugal is important to us, and Israel and Greece and Turkey are important to us. Interesting that we have old alliances in all those places. The Horn of Africa is important. Uh, Nigeria is important. Uh, Madagascar and, and, uh, and 
Somalia are important to us. India is terribly important to the future of the world. A massive population ruled by representative government. And then when you get over toward Vietnam and Singapore and, and all of that, that's, you know, a fulcrum of world trade. It's the busiest sea ports in the world. And then what have been our allies there? Not Vietnam, although I believe that's very that's much changing. a possibility. These yeah, days. that's changing. But uh, Philippines, Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, it's, it's not for nothing that we have our friends, and Britain largely overlapped, had its friends in those places. The Malay states, Singapore. Yep. And so if you, you know, if we want to be, and see, China is building an ocean-going navy, and China has this week announced a brand-new intercontinental stealth bomber, looks like our B-1 bomber. And, you know, they're having naval maneuvers with Russia today. And so they're aware of all that and their strategy, which they announce all the time, by the way. There are some good books about this. Their strategy is to dominate the Western Pacific Ocean. And what that does then, just just that by itself, is that permits them to dominate the Eurasian landmass. And Africa, too. They're building whole cities in Nigeria where they have walled cities that, that operate like the special economic zones in China. And they have Chinese technicians, and they have Chinese companies building, and they employ people from all over the world. And they're building colonial outposts in those places. And so you've got to figure that we can't let them exclude us from the Western Pacific. And when we, when we come back from break, we're going to talk about the parallel because Great Britain faced exactly, as Dr. Arn said, the same problem set as American officialdom faces today. They responded well and sometimes not so well. We'll find out what they did right and what they did wrong in the great power competition of 100 years ago that informs this one. Don't go anywhere. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, except to hillsdale.edu. I'll be right back. Welcome back, America. 22 minutes after the hour, it's Hugh Hugh in the ReliefFactor.com studio. My guest, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. It's the first Hillsdale Dialogue of the new decade. And we are uh, doing a subject that is appropriate to a big, big question. Where will we be in 2030 as we begin the 2020s? And a lot of that depends upon strategery, as George W. Bush would call it, grand strategy. Dr. Arn is a student of that because he's a student of Churchill. Dr. Arn, I begin by... A bit of breaking news. The threats are coming in. Quote, Iran's Supreme National Security Council members received a written order from Ayatollah Khamenei this morning that ordered that Iran, quote, strike America directly in exact proportion to the attack. Soleimani served the cause of protecting Iran's national interests with devotion. What do you make of that? And how would Churchill respond to such a threat? Well, you know, you have to meet force with force, right? I mean, how far do they want to go with this? <laughs> That's not, uh, you know, they're not uh, they're not in a good spot. You have to think about, you know, but, but I, I just gave a sort of map of the world because that orients us and shows us what parts of the world are important to us. But now think about the regime questions. So the trouble with Iran and and China is that they do not have and they have never had 
stable, well, in modern times, they've never had stable, sustainable political systems. In other words, we're going to get in a god-awful mess if we don't restore our system, but the one to be restored is ours, and it's familiar to us. When has Iran been well-governed? And, you know, people in Iran don't like their government, and the reason is their government is despotic. You know, they're strong, and relatively speaking, they have some oil and they have some wicked allies in Russia and China. But they, they you know, they, they're, they're uh, Mark Helpern explained this to me one time. Uh, the strategic situation of Iran is that the population is, comp- is, is concentrated in the center, and on either side are deserts and mountains. It's hard for them to get out. And, you know, they have a port on the, uh, they have ports on the, on the uh, Gulf of Oman, but then we've got Oman, and it's a choke point, and Saudi Arabia. And so the truth is, Iran's got huge problems, and we should exploit them, because they are a wicked bunch of people trying to project their power all over the Middle East and further, if they can, into Africa, too. So, so we should... You know, I mean, first of all, we have to defend ourselves, and that means we have to defend our embassies, and we have to defend our, you know, wherever we got people that are vulnerable, and that's the world we live in, and it's going to have to, you know, American embassies in any sensitive part of the world are going to be bunkers, but, you know, they may send people over here, start blowing people up in American cities, and if they do that, we're going to have to hurt them back, and we can hurt them more than they can hurt us. Teddy Roosevelt had a secretary of state, John Hay, with whom you are familiar since he was also Abraham Lincoln's personal secretary. And in 1904, an American by the name of Perticaris was taken captive by a Berber chieftain by the name of Rosuli. John Hay responded, quote, Perticaris alive or Rosuli dead? Close quote. <laughs> Isn't that perfect? That was succinct. Yeah. People love Teddy Roosevelt for things like that. Uh, and John Hay learned at Lincoln's knee, right? So there is... There's one message to be communicated to the Iranian leadership, which is, do that, and we will do far worse. Yeah, and then remember another feature. Uh, I have a good friend, a Silicon Valley guy, Nursi, N-E-R-S-I, and uh, uh, he tells me, he's an, you know, an Iranian immigrant, his parents came over here, and he tells me about Iran. It's a professional country. It's a lot of educated people. There is or was a big middle class. Our hearts go out to them, and we should appeal to them, and we should be their friends. Their regime has shot a thousand of them in the last month, killed them in the street. That's it. And they're, you know, they secret police, you know, in uh, the same forces in Afghanistan. There was a really plaintive story after the Taliban fell about a young man who was conscripted into the secret police, and his family threatened if he didn't do everything they said. And his job was to go around and look for people whose beards were not the right length, who were not dressed, or to walk around neighborhoods at night, seeing if anybody was listening to music or playing cards. And they would be arrested and tortured. That's you know? what a regime. <laughs> you know, that's not nice. That's not the regime that we need to be afraid of. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry on Great Power Competition and how to maintain your status at the top, because that means liberty stays at the top. Stay tuned. It's The Hugh Hewitt Show. Don't- 
Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, the first Hillsdale Dialogue of the Year. With Dr. Larry on, president of Hillsdale College, is appropriately about national security and great power competition. I spent a lot of the first two broadcast days of the year talking with retired senior military men about using the assets of national power to prepare for and thus deter conflict and to remain free and strong. Uh, Dr. Arn, this brings me to what happened to Great Britain after World War I. Uh, they did not remain strong, and as a result, they almost did not remain free. Well, they're, uh, you know, they had a 100-year run where they didn't really have any competition, and their power grew naturally from what kind of thing they were. So it means it was sustainable. And the kind of thing they were was this island you know, with rough seas on all sides, every place. There's no place in Britain more than 50 miles from the sea. And, and they're sailors. And they, they, once you get out on the world and you can navigate your home waters, you can go anywhere. And they went everywhere. And then their defense, you see, they, they didn't have to have a huge, expensive land army all the time because nobody could land on them. And that was their advantage. The disadvantage against Germany and the other great continental powers was that they didn't have the manpower and the massive military force, but their advantage was they didn't need it. And that's one reason why their, their uh, uh, political system was so free and why it was liberal in the sense that people could own things and the government didn't have to own everything. Constant war, Churchill warned of this all his life, conscripts everything and there's no room anymore for people to have their own stuff and make their own living and have their scope to move everything gets conscripted in a great war and so he always tried to avoid that and then what 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 he thought he thought uh, you know looking out on the world and you know because churchill was a prescient man and uh he saw from about 1898 that war you know when he was 26 years old 22, no, 1898, 24 years old, he saw that war was going to become very, very costly. You know, modern technology put to killing people. And so he thought it's got to be controlled. But he also thought this. He had some confidence. He thought, we're in a secure position. We can trade all over the world. It's hard for anybody to stop us. And, and we're stable. We have staying power. We are actually in a better position to take the long view than China, which is so famous for it. Because China is sitting on a powder keg. Just look at Hong Kong, right? I mean, people don't like that. The Chinese people, I, I should say this, they've seemed to me, I found that uh, I, was, I happened to be in Hong Kong Harbor. It wasn't just happened to be. That was the reason I was there. And, and I knew the first the leaders of the first democratic resistance in Hong Kong, and I was there for the handover from Britain to Hong Kong. And I, at the time, I dug it up. I gave a talk, and Martin Lee, the great founder of the movement that's leading the Hong Kong resistance today, uh, was, in, was there. And I said, you know, sometimes the Chinese remind me a little bit of the Germans. They're highly technical. They're intelligent people. They're very productive. They're organized they do have a habit of putting up with a little bit too much out of their government. And they're, you know, nationalistic, which is not a bad thing if it's wedded to the right kind of regime. And so 
I think that there's danger from them. I think that they close ranks when they feel threatened. I think they're interested in the greatness of China. But also, I think they're human. They want to be free. And so that means that that instability, you know, we have instability in our political system today, too, and it's serious. But it's also true that we have a legacy of solving problems like that. It's before us to solve these, but there's reason to think that they can be solved. Whereas they, they really have to kind of invent something new for China, implement something new in China to get away from this top-down despotism that it's, you know, in its ancient form was, was the Mandarins, and its modern form is the Communist Party. And that, that, that Communist Party thing is worse than the Mandarins because it's scientific in its nature. It means it's not bounded by tradition or much of anything. It means that they can invent it while they go. It means that President Xi can declare himself the ruler for life and give four-hour speeches doing it where people have spontaneous eruptions of weeping and waving flags with joy, yeah, like spontaneous and uh, so, you know, the Chinese people are human, and no human likes to listen to a four-hour speech. Yeah, no one. And <laughs> Kim Jong-un gave a seven-hour speech this week. Yeah, see? Isn't that something, you know? I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's like the Spartans. They were training their bladders. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, so, you know, they've got very deep problems. And, you know, I, I think that our, our, uh, if you start with the fact that we both defend ourselves and project power principally on the oceans and in the skies and in space. And then that means that the places on Earth that are important to that, that means we need a ring of allies around the Eurasian landmass, and we don't need to go too much into the interior except Europe where we have a bunch of old connections. Britain is the most important there. It always has been. And you know what's interesting about Britain? I don't know if you have yet read Dominic Cummings' private post on his blog yesterday. Have you seen that yet? No. Number 10 is hiring. And it's reproduced in its entirety at The Spectator. And you can just Google Dominic Cummings' number 10 is hiring. And it is, it is more than a platform. It's actually a revolutionary document. On And, and I don't say this lightly on the order of a Federalist paper, in that he intends to go far and fast, Boris Johnson does, and he does not intend to take the British Civil Service with him. He intends to overthrow it. And it's very explicit. Isn't that something? Yeah, and see, that's just, just think what a re- cause for rejoicing that is. Uh, you know, we, we don't, we are not. You know, I, I, I have friends in South Korea, and I used to say uh, to them, in fact, I formed my friendship with one of them. But I said, "Well, your way, our, you're our way of doing empire." And he blurted up, and he was, you know, Koreans can be stubborn, and they're kind of like Irish, you know, little tough little place, very coherent, surrounded by big powers. What do you mean? I said, "Well, you know, look, we come over here and help you, and what do we get for it? You have a free country, you have a million man army enrolled in the cause of right." You provide a base for us and some money to sustain it, and you get to live your lives the way you want to. Great, you know. So the point is, we need Britain is, you know, a great place. Israel is a great place. But, you know, Jordan has signs of, 
you know, civility and goodness. And uh, everywhere in the world where that happens, you know, we're going to, we have to have, and we do have, and we always have had, alliances with countries that are not entirely savory. But the uh, uh, alliances that we have that are the most valuable are with the countries that are. Uh, and, and let me read to you just the last three graphs of the Cummings Manifesto. I will use this blog to throw out ideas. It's important when dealing with large organizations to dart around at different levels, not be stuck with formal hierarchies. It will seem chaotic and, quote, not proper number 10 process to some. But the point of this government is to do things differently and better, and this always looks messy. We do not care about trying to control the narrative, and all that new labor junk in this government will be run, will not be run by the comms grid. As Paul Graham and Peter Thiel say, most ideas that seem bad are bad, but great ideas also seem at first like bad ideas. Otherwise, someone would already have done them. Incentives and culture push people in normal government systems away from encouraging ideas that seem bad. Part of the point of a small, odd number 10 team is to find and exploit without worrying about media noise what Andy Grove called, quote, very high leverage ideas, and these will almost inevitably seem bad to most. I will post some random things over the next few weeks and see what bounces back. It's all upside. There is no downside if you don't mind a bit of noise, and it's a fast, cheap way to find good ideas. Who does that sound like to you? <laughs> Somebody in Washington. Yeah, isn't that something? And see, you know, Peter Thiel, who I guess you're going to meet, is, uh, uh, he's, you know, he's the father of some of that stuff. And uh, he's, so, you know, just think, what, what do we need to do in America at home, right? First of all, we have to get our entitlement programs turned into real insurance schemes so they become a source of wealth and not a drain, right? And that'll take a lot of money and a long time, and along the way you have to guarantee everybody they're going to get their dough, but eventually you should be able to guarantee them they're going to get more dough and from their own savings. And You know, American people are going back to work right now in, in almost unprecedented numbers, so that's very hopeful. So that's the entitlement programs. And then the other thing is this unrepresentative, expensive, intrusive, regulatory state that makes and enforces our laws by the most awkward imaginable process. And that's what Cummings is talking about. Yes, it is. He wants to reform that thing. I think he wants to destroy it. I think yeah. he believes that the greatest impediment to Great Britain's revival and to America's continued standing as the greatest power in the world is this dead anchor of government that does not move, does not innovate. I've spared you the first 3,000 words of the Cummings Manifesto, but when you read it, you will be shocked at what he is saying. He is, he is embracing the idea that there is expertise. He is rejecting the idea that it ever ought to be tenured. Yeah. See, that's... And that there, there you go, right? That, in other words, the the, the conflict to have is... Who controls the government? If your answer is the people, then elected people are yes. going to be in control of the operations and the lawmaking in the government. And that's not true today. And, and, but it is in Great Britain because they have a parliamentary system. And the danger of a parliamentary system is that it can move very fast. Right, Dr. Arne? Well, you know, they have, uh, you know, he's got a hard road to hoe because... First of all, in Britain as in America, most of the laws are made outside Parliament now. And 
most of the, you know, most, you know, if there's a major change, you know, then that's a bureaucratic process just like here. That's going to change. Go what, read this during the break. What is to change is that? Go, go read during the break and then come back and reflect with me on what this means for Great Britain. I think it actually means it may be great again sooner than we expect. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. The Hillsdale Dialogue is how do we maintain and preserve America's national power? We study Great Britain. That is the first key both 100 years ago and today, this week. Don't go anywhere. I'll be back with Dr. Arn. Welcome back, America. You hear it with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, our first dialogue of the year about national greatness. All of the Hillsdale dialogues are collected at hillsdale.edu or at hughforhillsdale.com. In this hour, Dr. Arn, Donald J. Trump tweeted, Iran never won a war but never lost a negotiation. He also retweeted something that Jim Schuto of CNN wrote 10 hours ago, which is tonight there are hundreds of American families watching news of Soleimani's killing particularly closely. He engineered attacks in Iraq, often with sophisticated IEDs that killed hundreds of U.S. service members and wounded thousands more. It is astonishing to me that there are members on the left who seem to regret that we have done this. Surely it is dangerous, but it was righteous. I don't understand them. (laughs) It's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. I'm waiting for you to tell me, no, it's what Churchill would have done. Well, okay. So, you know, first of all, he, you know, one time uh, some Soviets took some captives in the Middle East, British diplomats, and Churchill never said this in public, but they, you know, they, they took some people and some of their families, and Churchill sent a text or a a telegram. He said, "Have these people no families of their own?" Yes. <laughs> so, you know, it, uh, it's uh, you know they these guys are playing a hard game, and we're going to have to play one too. Yeah. And I, and I don't mean attacking their families, but I do mean attacking them. Them. They're responding. Responding if they respond. Now I I don't know if you had a chance to read Cummings. Um, I, I did. I, what did you think? It's weird. The reason I was slow to answer your question, I was thinking about Cummings. Uh, So he's just, uh, you know, I got to meet that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. What in the world? No, he's, uh, he he, uh, wants, he, you know, first of all, the most important thing in the platform, the thing that stood out the best to me, in the Tory platform for election. And just think what that means, by the way. There's not surreptitious things going on here. These guys ran for office on, among other things, making the bureaucracy responsive to political leadership, which means the people. And that's an explicit plank in their platform. And now what this guy's doing is talking about doing that thing. Oh, you remind me, you taught me Churchill's signature phrase, action this day, right? He would scrawl that on everything. And so everyone had to act this day. It had that air about it. That's right. He, he, you know, they want to get some thinking going here. Like, uh, you know, we have so many problems, right? And our solution is always the same. Throw the problem into the middle of this bureaucratic maw that we call a government and let it chew on it for a decade and spend a lot of money and come up with only the stuff that we already knew. And so, you know, instead... You know, we ought to, you know, in a, in a good world, like the, uh, the tough thing is, I, think, I believe if Trump is reelected, he will 
uh, addressed the, uh, you know, I believe, he's hinted this, but he hasn't said it, that he's going to address the entitlement programs. And he's going to do that sympathetically. He, He believes in those things. He wants those things to prosper and be strong, right? And so, you know, Social Security's running out of money, and we're going to have to put more money into it, and Medicare and all that stuff, right? But we need to reform those, pro- those, those things so that people can have their investment mature and have security in their age, backed up by the state. And that's, you know, where we have that in America. Uh, Winston Churchill helped to invent that in Britain. It was a sound system when it was invented. It lasted for 30 years. And it's got to be protected from bad guys. I, I want to close with this last minute. That it, All of this is a promise that only endures if it is protected from bad guys. You have to be able to do that. Churchill did at the direst hour. And I think what Trump did yesterday was very much in that category of acting decisively against evil. That's right. And remember, say a word for Trump's restraint. Uh, you don't, you know, it, since it's true that we're distant from the centers of power in the world, and although we are the greatest single one center of power in the world, we live amongst, you know, what is it, what I say, 13% yes. of the world's population is close to us. And so we don't, we, we are not going to get where we need to go by, by, by slogging our way street by street through cities distant from here. And that, you know, Churchill was very reluctant to do that. And, you know, it, it's, the, it's the tragedy and, and irony of his life that he opposed and tried to prevent those big wars, and then they came, and there was no choice but to fight them, and he led in them. And, and people who don't read him, you know, including many American politicians, who don't read him, they just think he was always longing for war. And that's just not it. You know, you got to, he loved to, he loved to say like, you know, this, what I like about this thing in Iraq is, in Iran is that, you know, you can see we're going to go down the regular road. We're going to slog with them. They're going to kill a few of us. We're going to put some sanctions on them. And then darn if we didn't just kill the guy who did it. Yeah. (laughs) Something sudden happened and we're stronger today because of it. Dr. Larry Arn, that is lost on a lot of people, but it is not lost on this audience. Hillsdale.edu for this and much, much more. We'll be back next week. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Generalissimo. Thanks, all of you, for listening to this first live week on the 2020 edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show.